Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. Now, you may have noticed that the intro music is a little different. That's because the intro music comes from one of my favorite bands of all time, a band called Ife that I discovered two years ago in 2017. In 2017, to be more precise, they were actually called The Band to Watch by NPR, and I have seen them in Brooklyn play twice, and I've also bought their vinyl album, and I've also stalked them online. But this was a healthy stalking, I assure you. Now, let me back up a little bit. As some of you know, the theory of enchantment is about many, many things. It's about mental health. It's about healthy identity formation. But it's about those two particular things seen through the lens of pop culture, and more specifically, the arts. And of course, one of the greatest sources of art of all time is music. So in addition to interviewing influencers in the intellectual space and in the social media space, I will also be trying to interview more artists in the music space, in the fine arts space, in the design space. So our first artist is actually the founder of Ife. His name is Oturo Moon. He lives in San Juan. And we had a really fascinating discussion about his journey from America to San Juan and his musical experience and the existential journey that he went on in creating this music. Now, before you listen to this episode, I highly encourage you, no, I beg you to please stop what you're doing and first go listen to Ife's debut album. I recommend listening to it from start to finish, i.e. don't put it on shuffle. Listen to it from the very beginning to the end, and then come back to listen to this interview. I promise you, you won't regret it. Now that that's out of the way, without further ado, here's my interview with Oturo Moon, the founder of the band Ife. Thank you for taking the time uh, out of your day um, to do this. Uh, I feel like your album is one of the few albums I've ever listened to that reminds me of what I imagine the voice of God must sound like. So it's a really important album to me personally. Um, and I guess my first question would be just like, what was the inspiration for your debut album? Um, you know, how did you get to this place existentially, metaphysically, whatever word you want to use to, to produce this and bring this forth? Well, uh, I suppose um, it, it. I should maybe talk about what you know. I mean, there's a lot to like actually making the music itself mm-hmm. and the artwork behind the record, but um, I, I guess I have to preface it with with uh, you know um, sort of the years leading up to that too, because it it it's, it's kind of a culmination of a lot of uh, artistic work uh, in terms of like beating on my craft. And then also, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, human evolution, if you will. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, um, also, uh, I learned Spanish in the last 20 years and it's become my main spoken language. And so uh, uh, in the years where I would have kind of come up with a dexterity in the English language, it sort of all went to, you know, crap because i decided to learn another language so yeah there's gonna be, there's gonna be some grammatical errors in here let's just put it that way so okay uh anyways um 
to, to dial it back, uh, um, I, I was uh, born in Indiana. I'm African-American. I grew up there until I was about 18 years old. And uh, when I was 18, I finished high school and I went to study on a drumline scholarship to the University of North Texas. Uh, so I moved from the Midwest to the South. And uh, I was in Texas from 93 until about 99. Uh, and in 99, I decided to pick up and move to Puerto Rico. Um, there was a lot of reasons to move, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, but probably the, the biggest one for me was that I had a death in the family and, uh, it's my brother, uh, committed suicide in 1998. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, I, I, you know, I don't have like a huge family, but, you know, I had one brother and two sisters and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had not been around my family for probably uh, six years or something like that. Like, uh, I moved to Texas and I sort of liked the idea of creating a new life for myself in Texas. Mm -hmm. Indiana was super oppressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I came from a, a Christian family that was like a Mennonite family. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, I was kind of a rebel kid. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and uh, I saw the church as sort of like a means of control. I, that's the way I saw religion, generally speaking. Okay. Um, so I had this sort of death in the family. Um, it was difficult on just a you know human level. You know, that's my brother. You know, uh, yeah. and so there was a lot of hurt there, and uh, and there was a lot of anger and sort of self judgment that was. Mm you know, kind of pumping through me. And um, I took that anger and sort of like used it like a wrecking ball in Texas uh, okay. to the point to the point that, you know, I had some close friends to sort of check me and say, hey, look, you know, we know you're really going through it, but, you know, please don't make us suffer and you got to really watch it because, you know, you're getting mean. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just sort of took that as a cue that it, maybe it was a time for me to like hit reset and, uh, and get away from people that I could be injuring that I didn't want to injure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had taken a vacation to Puerto Rico in 1997 and just really enjoyed it. Um, you know, uh, again, I grew up in the Midwest and I went to study in the South and th they were both really segregated experiences. Uh, okay. And so when I got to Puerto Rico, I sort of took, uh, you know, this black American vision of the world and brought it to San Juan intact. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so when I saw a group of black people walking up the street, I crossed the street to say hello, you know, mm -hmm. and it ended up that they were Dominicans. Well, I'd never met Dominicans. I grew up in Indiana and Texas. And so the idea of black people that were speaking Spanish as their first language was just, you know, out of left field for me because mm -hmm. it wasn't something that I was just culturally prepared for. And and so, the, you know, the way that race and, and ethnicity works in Latin America and, and Puerto Rico specifically was eye-opening to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the fact that um, because I didn't speak the language, there was a cultural barrier that existed for me uh, in terms of getting to really understand, uh, you know, my neighbor or sure. Puerto Rican people in general, you know. Um, and so... Uh, it was an impacting experience. I was hit with music and culture and all these sorts of things that uh, I, you know, I had never really witnessed. I came back to the States 
And I said, you know what? I, I, uh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, and, uh, I was like, I don't understand why I can't just, you know, learn Spanish. And I think if I was able to learn Spanish, it would be like a cultural bridge that I could cross later on in life, you know? And, uh, you know, uh, I was also DJing a lot in Texas at the time. And, uh, a lot of the kids that I was DJing for were Mexican and they were into b-boying and this and that. I remember being at this one kid's house and his mother saw me and she's like, Hey, he's Puerto Rican. Bring him in. He's like, no, no, he's black. She said, she said, said, no, 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 he can, he can stay out there then. You know, and it was just like, it was just crazy to me that there was this wall, uh, you know, uh, put up between people because of culture and language, uh, you know, within black and brown communities. And, And I was just like, look, let's, Let's see if I could cross it in. So uh, when I sort of hit this wall, uh, you know, um, in life, I was like, look, I, I think I'm done with the U.S. for a while. It was mm-hmm. also the same year that they put James Byrd Jr. in mm-hmm. chains and, dr- and drug him behind a truck. Uh, and that was in Texas. And I was yeah. around for that, you know. And I was like, I think it's a good time for me to leave the U.S. And so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I picked up and... Um, and just tried to make a go at, you know, sort of creating a new life for myself. And, and um, you know, really the building blocks in that moment were sort of language and culture. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I hit Puerto Rico uh, and sort of just dug into music uh, because that's how I was making my living before I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I went to the university for a little while there and uh, made a go at learning Spanish, uh, you know, in academics. and. I was studying sociology uh, and music at the University of North Texas, and I was really close to graduating, but, you know, I, uh, I just didn't, um, when I got to PR, my life just became music, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I sort of left the academic world sitting there and, and, and doubled down on music. Now, um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, this is the long story, I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it short, I swear, but, uh, you know, um, I, I started producing music after a couple of years for artists that um, I just liked. You know, mm-hmm. I've never been a music producer for someone that wasn't like a close friend of mine. Okay. So all the music I was making was always for people that, you know, I just loved as people, you know. And, and we, uh, you know, it was a woman that I met there pretty quickly named uh, Jari Midkaban, whose artist name is Mima. And uh, I just fell in love with her and, and her voice. And, and we just, you know, uh, everything, I just wanted to keep making music for her. And at the same time, I met a group of guys that were rappers and I was super into hip hop and we became best friends. And nice. uh, I started started producing for those guys too. We ended up, you know, moving into a house together in this uh, kind of city of God type neighborhood in, in mm. Puerto Rico called La Pella. And, uh, and so during those years, I made a record for uh, Ciencia Ficción, which was the rap group, uh, and sort of worked with the, almost exclusively people that were doing rap or, you know, Spanish hip hop, basically, in Puerto Rico. Uh, I was DJing those parties. I was throwing those parties. I was recording those artists, was producing for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was just sort of my life. I was also working on a record with Nima. Uh, who was also, you know, slowly but surely becoming my best friend, and and uh, I I missed an opportunity to prefer, to prom, to produce her first record, but she wasn't so happy with the results on that, and then I ended up producing the second record. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first record I did with the rap group, 
um, all the beats were really, really dark. And, okay. And it, it's a super moody record. Um, you know, uh, the record it was actually called Hate. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was like, I, I forget what you call this in English when you have like a, it's like a, a letter and then a dot, a letter. It's an acronym. Is that what it is? Acronym? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyways, um, it, it was like Opción de Introducir. It, 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 it was three letters or four letters that combined to make the word hate, which is Olio in Spanish. The record, mm-hmm. just to sum it up, the record was super dark. It was super moody. And really a lot of the songs on the record were sort of dedicated to my brother. You know? Okay. Um, you know, and... Um, I just, all the music I was making had a real, like, uh, you know, it sounded like someone that was trying to let something go, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and, uh, and so while I was making that record, I was living in like a very vibrant place, but a very violent place too. Like okay. I had, <laughs> I had, a, you know, the SWAT teams were sweeping in and out of my neighborhood kind of constantly. There was constantly shootouts. I saw my first dead bodies. I saw people wow. shooting each other for the first time in Puerto Rico. It was a, a really live place, you know? And um, I sort of became indifferent to a lot of that violence. Okay. And, and, but I, I was able to sort of wrap my head around it because I also felt that like living in the United States as a black person, you sort of had to be, ready for violence Mm -hmm. you know um because that's kind of what the state throws at you and and so i I missed parts of my life living in the united states and other parts uh when i would go to the united states i was happy i missed the spanish language and the the feeling of brother and sisterhood that i had in puerto rico but they were both like violent places Mm -hmm. and and difficult places to be for a lot of the same reasons um one is that um, both were like sort of filled with a group of people that have been systematically marginalized, mm-hmm. you know? And so I recognize the feeling that people get from colonialism and from being told that you're not capable of doing something and that someone else is actually better at it than you are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you could kind of see that in the group of people that I was working with. And it was sort of another where I thought that I was jumping out of one place and wouldn't have to deal with it. I had to deal with it in another way. You know? okay. And and so uh, I think there's some sentiment of that that's inside of the record it, as well, the, the first rap record I, I made. Anyways, um, just like things that are maybe not in the right place, generally speaking, this project fell apart and the group ended up breaking up and we became like mortal enemies. Like, wow. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. they, in a super violent way, so much so that I had to leave Puerto Rico and I left for like two years. And finally, this woman that the other woman that I was working with, Nima, pulled me back to produce a record for her in 2008. And I came back and basically had to make peace with people that actually wanted to kill me. You know? wow. yeah. And and it was, uh, yeah, it was just kind of crazy. Um, so I worked through that, those relationships that I had. And actually, the, the way that I was able to work through sort of this, you know, really intense uh you know, hate that existed now in a place where love used to exist uh, between great friends, I had to realize that the reason that we were able to damage each other or wanted to hurt each other so bad is because we did love each other, hmm. you know? And, yeah, like and, as, a, uh, as opposed to like indifference? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I suppose. 
Yeah. You know, um, I think the indifference is maybe when you feel that you have a lack of control over over the violence that may or may not happen okay. to you or around you. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard to like invest yourself in everything that might totally crash and burn. Right. You know, <laughs> and it's uh, exhausting, definitely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think that's where the indifference comes, you know, and it's, it's funny. I'm reading, I'm rereading Tony Morrison's uh, Beloved right now. Okay, and I remember yeah. uh, like one of the characters, uh, Paul D, when he finds out what um, uh, Seth did, he said, uh, you know, your, your love is too thick. You know, uh, yeah. And he's talking about they got You got to love small, like you know, and uh, because you never know, there's things you love might get taken from you. You know, like yeah. that, and you know, and so I think that's what I meant in terms of indifference. But I realized that, for example, these group of this group of friends that I have, um, the one that was the really the 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 most upset with me was the one that I had known the longest and was my best friend out of the group, and he's the one that sort of like was the tipping point in the, in the whole thing. So when I came back to Puerto Rico, the first thing I sort of did was found each person and just apologize to them. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I realized, I had to realize too, I, I was like, I was doing crazy stuff to these people. I had a temper that was just super short. Uh, you know, um, I'm a, a super demanding person in terms of like uh, a level of, um, you know, commitment that I expect from people that are working in the arts. You know, and in any art that I'm working with, and I and I, I also like am sort of tirelessly working on artistic projects, mm-hmm. and and usually I'm the one that has sort of the vision top down. And I was working with these guys that were rappers, but I had like six years on them, maybe. Okay. You know, and and, and so the level of commitment that I had was not the one that they had, and I think that they just didn't understand what I was doing, and so I was the one that like. When like put was directing the video, I got the house was to be in. I got the equipment. I got this and that. And um, I was also working with a chip on my shoulder, and mm-hmm. I was just a reactionary man. And so I apologized for the things that I did to sort of destroy each relationship that I had with each individual on a personal level. And it was the first thing I had to do to be able to like basically uh, get us close to each other again, so that we could see the friendship and love that was actually there. And it was funny, you know, it didn't take too much time with each person that as soon as I put one foot forward, they put another foot forward towards me. And, and, you know, we wanted to be friends, but something had snapped, you know? And so, uh, so yeah, there there was a process there of sort of learning to, you know, say, I'm sorry. And, uh, and, uh, and that helped me to sort of get to the place where I could make it through the next couple of years and produce this record for this woman. Uh, And we put that out in 2011 and okay. then I packed up everything that I had and put it in storage and decided to travel uh, and leave Puerto Rico because I always felt that if I was in Puerto Rico and I wasn't making art that, um, and I guess in that sense, music, uh, that I didn't have any reason to be there okay. uh, because I didn't have family there. I didn't like, you know, um, there's a lot of political, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, things that need to happen. In Puerto sure. Rico, and 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 me sort of being an outsider, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I felt that it wasn't my place to sort of take a political stance or be a person with a political voice. One, because I'm coming from a community which is actually the oppressor there. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm coming from the United States, and my opinion as an American 
maybe isn't the most welcomed opinion. And I still deal with some of those issues, but I, I, I felt more then that it, it wasn't like sort of my place to take that kind of stance, but that I did bring a set of uh, gifts and experiences that were um, unique. Mm-hmm. And, and me sort of cleaving or, or, or smashing or, or putting those experiences with other musicians and artists there, I was able to create something that I think was unique. The, the music that we were making, the hip hop stuff was unique. And mm-hmm. the things that I was doing for this other artist, Nima, were there's nothing out there that really sounded like that. And that's the reason why I was there, was mm-hmm. to make art that only I could make by being there. And if I, I didn't feel like I was able to produce something, then I had to leave. And so I finished all my projects, I packed mm-hmm. everything up, and I traveled for a little while to think about what I wanted to do next. And there I decided, hey, look, you know, um, uh, I, I feel like the invisible world exists. Sure. Uh, and I want to figure out how to access it. You know, um, I'm not super successful, but I have a handle on the physical life that I want to live. You know, I've got an apartment, I'm doing, I have the musical gear I want to make. I'm able to produce things. I'm able to be happy in the physical world. Uh, but there's an invisible world that's there and I want to access it. And I don't know how. So and, what, and, yeah. So, so what uh, sort of uh, allowed for that transition? Because you said earlier that you were, you thought, you know, you had this very specific relationship with religion um, in America, when in America. So like, how did that shift? Was it just a outgrowth of some of the experiences you were having, like reuniting with your former friends? Did that feel spiritual to you? And so like, did that ignite a spiritual yearning within you? Or do you think it was bubbling up over time? Um, I wouldn't say that that ignited a spiritual yearning in me. I just think that I was old enough to, to sort of uh, recognize the, uh, you know, the, the benefits of humility, I guess, okay. <laughs> you know, um, you know, especially in hip hop music and in punk rock and a lot of these things that, that the idea of your ego sort of being on fire yeah. is like, <laughs> is, is, is super important, but yeah. also, you know, that kind of mind state, although it make might make for great artwork is also very misleading. You know, you're yeah. not, a lot of times people that are like that aren't very good listeners. I certainly sure. wasn't, you know, um, although I appeared to be, you know. Uh, so I think I just had enough life experience to realize that, yeah, uh, you know, Christianity in the way I knew it was definitely a tool of control and uh, used to, uh, you know, conquer the Americas in some ways and, sure. and, uh, and you know, pacify Africans in America and uh, across the you know, this hemisphere. and. It, you know, and make us okay with, you know, uh, you know, endless labor with the idea that you know, the promised land is somewhere else, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I understand the historical use of it, you know, but I also think that there is an invisible world out there and I can't understand it on my own. I'm not Buddha. I'm not like, a, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm just a guy, you know, and, yeah. and there are people that have dedicated their lives to this and, and can show me. And, and so I, I, I came across a group of Santeros in 1999 when I first moved out here. I got booked to DJ a party. Uh, actually, it was a Millennium Party. Uh, 
And I was booked as a DJ with a group of Santeros who were playing rumba. Uh, so there was like our Puerto Rican uh, Orisha practitioners that are playing a secular music called rumba that they mm -hmm. learned from Cubans, basically. And then on the same party, they brought a, an African drum and dancer who were Yoruban. And we were all booked at the same place. And so it was crazy because the Puerto Ricans were playing and singing to the Orishas and the Yoruban dude knew the songs. And he, <laughs> he, he just couldn't believe what the Puerto Ricans were doing. And so for me, it, being an African-American, I'm seeing my neighbors who have this connection uh, to the spiritual practice that I've always known was out there, but sort of... Uh, thought about it in an abstract way because mm -hmm. it wasn't accessible to me, you know, at least in Indiana and in, in Texas where I was at uh, in a way that I understood, you know, the, the religion to me was going to church on Sundays. And, and sure. so uh, I, I saw like the practice and, and sort of knew like, okay, well, there's something for me here. But I also sensed that there was a level of commitment that was, that you needed to have that I wasn't, you know, willing to put forth. Okay. And so in 2012, I was like, look, um, there's a, a music that I've always wanted to learn, which is Cuban rumba, which I thought was sort of, um, you know, on the level of jazz music in its breadth of expression, uh, in in its uh, ability to move in, inside of improvisation, and the ability to be able to do it with a sort of limited number of people. You could have this really high level musical conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a it's something that I'd seen, but I had never dedicated my time to learn. I was like, you know what? I really want to learn that. And I want to try and make a go at, at discovering the invisible world and how to uh, interact with it. And so I decided to start uh, consulting with a Babalao, who, yeah. uh, who is, we are, I guess, because I'm a Babalao at this point, uh, sort of the uh, one of the, of, the, of the priests that are involved in the religion. And so that was it. I took my stuff out of storage. I got a new apartment. And for six months, uh, I basically just started studying the drums and the patterns for Roomba. And I would do that from like, uh, I don't know, uh, nine in the morning until nine at night. And I wow. did it like, yeah, like, like six days a week. Uh, but when you start doing something like that and, and it's that time consuming, you sort of lose your social life completely. And so you get to that seventh day and you don't really have anybody to call. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you just practice again, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I, I did that for like about six months and then I left and traveled again. And during that six months, I started to consult with the Babalao. Um, and, and that process is basically a process of self-discovery through mm -hmm. divination. Okay. You know? And, uh, and that divination is something that people uh, that are practitioners have a tendency to do about once a month. And then there are sort of initiations that are very meaningful divinations where they'll talk about your life uh, in a much larger swath. And, okay. um, and so I sort of did these sort of mini monthly divination sessions and then initiated into the religion where I basically received the first four Orishas that are called the Guerreros. And that's an initiation into a spiritual house where I'm going to start working with one Babalao specifically and, mm -hmm. and sort of making a commitment to take care of these entities that are birthed for me uh, for the rest of my life. So it's a deeper step. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went, um, I, I came to the religion because I wanted to know 
what the spiritual world was and mm -hmm. how to uh, move inside it. Not because I had a, a particular problem or issue that I needed to get solved. Um, okay. Now, I know you asked about the, the friends that, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, things went sour and, and I had to kind of uh, reapproach that relationship through asking for forgiveness. I think that's just something I came to because my friend uh, Jadi or Mima um, showed me that that's what I had to do, you know, okay. and and that's kind of where the song Jadi Gemini comes from. Is the idea. I was going to ask you actually later on, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so she basically helped me to be able to forgive myself for all the crazy things I did to these people and had done to other people. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, showed me that forgiveness is kind of the way, you know, yeah. and, and so that's what made me able to, to, to sort of take that step with all these individuals and kind of every individual that, um, that, uh, you know, where I feel that that's something that just has to, has to take place, you know, but that was something that was like, just sort of, uh, maturing as a human being. Sure. And w when I was able to sort of take those sorts of steps, I was sort of able to see, um, you know, myself in a different light. And part of the reason why I was so angry uh, about the death of my brother is that I blamed myself for the death, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's a hard one to swallow, you know? And so I had to learn to forgive myself for the things that I've done, you mm -hmm. know? And, and uh, once I was able to do that, I think like, um, I was just able to lighten the load a little bit, you know? Yeah. And, and so when I came back and started uh, studying this new genre and working on uh, things in my spiritual life or beginning to try and have a spiritual life uh, in an organized and sort of, uh, you know, methodical way, um, I realized that I wanted to make a new project and that I wanted to basically have it be my project because I had always produced stuff for other people, whether it was singers or rappers or whatever. And so, um, and when I was doing that, I kind of did it in a real like Pete Rock, DJ Premier, like nineties hip hop way. And sure. I was using source material, uh, in the, in the form of like old records to okay. make songs. And so with this project, um, I, I was sort of really into fashion at the time. And okay. I've always been into uh, photography as like a visual art form because I'm just not very good at drawing. But I, <laughs> I, I, I just gravitated towards photography, period. And, 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 uh, and I'm also colorblind and I like design. Oh, so, interesting. So I, I would pull things offline uh, that I liked the color scheme of, not, but knowing that I would never be able to duplicate the colors by saying, oh, well, this is red and I'm just going to take some sort of yellow or, or this. And so sometimes I would take things that I like and sort of rob the colors of the images themselves for design things. So I had a whole folder of like things that were just inspiring to me, whether it was design stuff, photography, fashion, this, this, and that, that I had been compiling for the last few years because I'm bored and I'm on the internet, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, um, one of the things, so I sort of started digging through those visual images, thinking about like what I wanted to call this project. Okay. Uh, and this was in like 2013. Um, and so, 
as I was going through it, one of the words that I liked a lot was a word that somebody had called uh, a reggae artist that I was working with who was just an incredible lyricist. And okay. some guy heard, heard that guy, uh, you know, basically singing or rapping or whatever he was doing. He was like, oh, that guy's La Macacoa. And I was like, wow, what is that word? And he's like, he's like, he's like, oh yeah, La Macacoa. That's like, uh, that's like the curse. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved the way the word sounded, you know, yeah. and the idea that that it was this, you're calling somebody the curse, and I was yeah. like, wow, that's that's wild. And so I thought about that as the name of the project um, because it sort of is like this, you know, cloud or whatever or, uh, that you drape over somebody or something, and they don't have a lot of control over it. Like you're sure. sort of, you know, uh, but um, I also felt that the music I wanted to make with this project was going to come from a lighter place. And like that, 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 um, you know, I wanted to sort of leave that kind of like musical exploration behind me. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah. So I you would have, that. you would have been going from hate to the curse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Straight up. Yeah. Uh, although I, I, you know, I, clearly I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, it just didn't fit, you know, and I was actually letting a homie crash on the couch during that time. And he was also somebody else that I thought that was really talented, but it seemed like every time he tried to do something, it just sort of fell apart. Okay. You know? And I could identify with that like a lot. I mean, you, you have no idea how many projects I worked on for like months. And then all of a sudden, like, it just didn't materialize or you never even heard those records. Like the, the rap record, it never came out. The group broke up before the record came out. I left Puerto Rico for two years. And when I came back, that record was a cult classic in the streets because somebody had, had leaked the, the last bounce of it. That's and, crazy. You know, to this day, the songs don't have titles, but like there's a whole generation of people that know that record is like a pivotal record, you know, but I never... It, it never did anything for me, you know, other than like <laughs> just working through uh, the idea of making something, you know. And so I had a lot of projects like that. Um, so I could identify with somebody that felt like they were cursed, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it was just kind of the other side of it. But anyways, I, I was going through it. And I was like, no, nah, you know, I really want this this music to to basically inspire people to give people hope you know and and that's the kind of music i want to try and make right now and i was going through all these visual images and i saw um this these images that were like a photo shoot from life magazine from after the watts riots oh and wow they sent, they sent like a photographer there to basically shoot like street gangs and watts yeah. and what the photographer what the photographer found were like these kids that were like dandies you know they oh, were wow. basically basically like super, super sophisticated and dapper and yeah. just like hanging out, you know? Kind of like end Prince of in his old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this, this guy that went there to shoot like, you know, violent street gangs and watch ended up shooting these kids. And there was a couple images from the, the, the shoot that I just really liked. And as I was looking at that shoot, I saw the Life magazine logo. And, you know, from a design oh. standpoint... Yeah, from a design it standpoint, it's, it's amazing, you know? Yeah. And I looked at it and I was like, okay, wow, red and white, that's the colors of Shango. And Shango and the religion is the owner of music and dance. You know what's crazy like, about that? So my company, Theory of Enchantment, and the name of this podcast, Theory of Enchantment, 
Its uh -huh. logo is also red and white. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> uh, beautiful, man. Yeah, yeah, this was like, you know, the, the, the colors themselves have like a, a lot of meaning inside of the religion. So that's the first thing I saw was red and white. And I was like, okay, Chango, we have music and dance here. Uh, and, and then I just sort of looked at it some more and was thinking about like, you know, I, I, I'm a vintage or an antique store guy. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll hit any antique store I see. And I always love a little magazine section going back to the old life magazines or whatever. And I'm looking at it and I was like, oh my God, if you lap off the L, you get Ife, which in Yoruban means love, but it can also mean expansion. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was like, that's it. That's the project. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. You know? And so it just worked because that's what, in a nutshell, I wanted to, to express. That's what, what I wanted people to take away from the music. I love the idea that the word means love and expansion. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, because I felt like it was really a time, uh, for personal growth on my end. So in a personal way, it, it has a intense meaning for me, but that meaning um, is so universal, you know? Uh, yeah. So I just felt like there was a million ways to apply it. Um, I had something visual that was basically the word and the logo itself that had power, period. Like you could apply it to almost any image that had meaning, and then you could add subtext or sub-meaning to it. And right. that that's what I tried to do in the music as well is build songs that had multiple points of entry, um, you know, depending on where you're coming from, Yeah. you know, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, I intentionally tried to make something that's inclusive, I guess. Yeah. You know, uh, and and so that's it. I didn't know how I was going to make the music yet, but I knew that that's what I wanted it to express. And um, that was that, you know. So n now because I had sort of changed my way of queuing up ideas, I also felt that if I was going to make something in the year 2015, which is when I started to actually make the, well, even 2013, uh, mm -hmm. I made a go at like making some of the first Ife songs because I knew that was the name of the project in 2013 and I couldn't do it uh, okay. because I was, I had just gotten this new piece of equipment called the machine, which is like a, oh yeah, uh, I have one of those and, if you're talking about the same yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it had just come out, I think in, in around that time, or maybe I just found out about it around the time. Yeah. It, that second version, MK2 had just come out. And a friend of mine convinced me to get it because I used to make music on the MPC. Okay. And so I got the machine and I knew that I wanted to make Roomba like the, the sort of like rhythmic inspiration for the music. And I had the machine and I was basically trying to like program out Roomba patterns on the machine. Mm. But it was, it was boring. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't get excited about it. And I didn't know enough about Roomba to really be able to like make it work. Okay. Uh, Cause I had just started studying it, you know, and um, this was and the so, after, this was after the six months of doing it, of practicing. This is, this is during the six months. Of practicing. Oh, okay. I bought, I bought the machine in San Francisco, came home, took all my stuff out of storage, start, got a Roomba teacher, found the Babalao, started consulting. And I just lived in that world for like, and I was kind of splitting my time between learning how to use the machine and learning the first patterns of Roomba at the beginning of that six months. And little by little, I just stopped using the machine and just totally started 
practicing the drums and that was it. Because I felt like the way that I was making music before, I couldn't do it uh, this way. I, I couldn't just sit in front of a machine and like program out these parts, uh, sure. it, you know. But I was convinced that I couldn't sample records and make this project because I didn't want the project to sound um, throwback or, mm -hmm. um, you know, vintage or from an era that wasn't today. I wanted it to sound ultra modern because mm -hmm. I felt that the message that was there needed to be understood by kids. Like right. youth ha had to like be able to grasp this record to, and not. Yeah, it had to resonate it, with them. Yeah, and, and not, you know, and that's the cool thing about the, about, you know, Roomba and the drums sometimes is that like people will look at those instruments as sort of antiquated and immediately feel like that doesn't have anything to do with them because it doesn't sound like the sounds that they're used to hearing. Um, uh, although they, they may know, you know, instinctively, this is like the, the roots of that yeah. sound. You're not going to find kids that are out there like listening to, you know, Baba Alatunje or, or the Monjequito de Matanzas on a daily basis. They're listening to, you know, Drake or, right. you know, whatever else is, you know, out there. So, um, I felt that it had to be quote unquote electronic music, but mm -hmm. what I don't like about electronic music is that it doesn't live. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't breathe. Yeah. Know? And because I'm a, a, a hands-on drum set player, if I was to go see a group like Justice, it's mm -hmm. like this French duo or, or a Chromio, what I'm probably going to get is like guys pushing some buttons mm -hmm. and then maybe playing keyboards over the top. And that just doesn't do it for me as yeah. like uh, a, a, a spectator of music. I want to see life and, and change yeah. and emotion in it. And so I didn't know how to make electronic music in that way. Uh, and I just had to think about it for a while. And while I was doing that, I was basically trying to learn the rules of Roomba so that I could play the music and be able to improvise and actually just sit down and play the music. Like, it'd be like if I tried to learn how to play jazz piano, I didn't know how to play piano. And I took a couple <laughs> years to, to like, you know, learn how to do yeah. it. And then, then started sitting in with like mediocre jazz groups and like, you know, being the worst player there, and, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, just trying to learn the craft. And I did that inside of Roomba you know, all day, every day for about two years. And okay. in, in 2015, I sort of had an epiphany. I was like, okay, well, maybe what I could do is take the drums themselves and add electronic triggers to them. And then that's how I'll make the music so that I don't have to sit in front of a machine mm -hmm. and like program the music. I can play it. What I want to do is play. Right, now, that's, right. really, that's really why I studied Roomba because I saw that it was so much fun to play, you know? Um, and I wanted to have fun, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and so, um, I, you know, I wanted to communicate on that level. You know, I wanted to let my soul fly on that level, you mm -hmm. know? I, and, and so uh, that's it. I took two years. It was long enough for me to be able to basically learn how to play the music. I had the idea for putting electronic triggers on the hand drums, which was something that, I think, at least that I'm aware of, no one that's had any sort of like success really has, or at least in a commercial sense, has been able has done that before. So I'd never seen anybody do it. Mm -hmm. I had to figure out like what equipment I would need to do it. Like I, I bought that equipment, which was super expensive, and just gambled. You know, yeah. I was I was like, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I'm going to do it. And so I bought the gear and basically sat at home and built the sound sets for the first 
month or so. And uh, I, it did work. And, and I, was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, this, this is going to be crazy. And then I just uh, called up some people that I felt could play Roomba and could also sing and just started playing with them. And um, from a musical end, it, it did everything I wanted it to do. Like, it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard. The electronic sounds were crazy. It's just like whatever you wanted to put on the drum could be there. And I, I tried to purposely use like almost like trappy dance hall sounds. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, because I mean, I don't listen to trap, but I, I do love dance. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And I've, I've been obsessed with it for years. And so at the time, like, um, you know, there were, well, I mean, dance halls always sort of, dialogue with with hip-hop from the jamaican side mm -hmm. to uh you know the hip-hop side so they, they listen to those records and they'll like cover like uh, bodak yellow or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like uh <laughs> yeah. so you know um that's kind of where i get the rap stuff like i had never heard of cardi b i just heard uh <laughs> busy signal rap over cardi b's song and i was like oh that dizzy verse is crazy they're like oh yeah it's a cardi song I'm like who's that you know um, so yeah, I, I took those sounds. It worked like from a musician's end really well, but mm -hmm. I didn't have anybody to write the music. And I, I tried to work with a couple different singers and, uh, they would never show up. <laughs> to, like, to, to, like the really? Rehearsal. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of them, she was, a you know, she was great, but she just had like a lot going on. She's a school teacher and a mother, okay. and, you know, whatever. So it's not like, I don't think it's necessarily on her end a lack of wanting to be there but like sure. i also know that that the other people that i wanted to work with they were so traditional that i think they would have just tried to do something traditional over the music and that's not exactly what i wanted to do i didn't really want to play electronic room but i wanted to do something else yeah and um and after like three months of like just playing with other musicians and not having any vocal things happening i was like well all right, I guess I'll just try and write this stuff, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I was literally like, you know, sort of pejorative in the sense that I was like, well, if Daddy Yankee can do it, I can do it. <laughs> you know, here we go, you know? And, you know, whatever, all respect due to this guy, I guess. I don't like reggaeton, but whatever. And yeah. but the, point, the point is that, you know, why not? So I, I, I had a go at it and um, I knew what I wanted to say, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I kind of knew where the message was supposed to go. And so the first song that I wrote was House of Love. And, okay. Um, and uh, I kind of just recorded like a quick sketch vocal of it. And I showed it to uh, Mima or Jotty, who's my good friend, who's, you know, been the person that I've made music for so she can work vocally. And she really liked it. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, I guess, uh, I guess it's okay. And I'm going to try and make some more. And um, I got the hook for Tres Mujeres from... Um, one of the other members of Ife, which is a guy named Beto Torrens. And the hook was Ife, Boru, Iboye, Bocheche, which is basically mm -hmm. the name of the group and then the, the greeting that you would give to other Babalaos uh, mm -hmm. as initiates, which is Iboru, Iboye, Bocheche. Now that comes from a story in the Ifa corpus uh, about three women that sort of uh, gave a warning to a Babalao and sort of helped uh, Ifa in this particular way. And so I wanted to sort of talk about the story of the, uh, use the story uh, to sort of build a song. Mm -hmm. And I went to my friend Kathy Cepeda's house, who's like a rapper and like a bomba artist. Uh, and 
and showed her the beat. She didn't know I was working on a project. And I had the beat for Tres Mujeres, and I wanted to write to it, but my vocabulary in Spanish isn't very good. And okay. so I sort of wanted her to, like, give me a hand to sort of polish out the idea. And she heard the beat, and she was like, oh, I got to write to this. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, I was like, look, there's a, there's some thematic, there's a theme yeah. here, you know. So this is kind of what I want to talk about. If you can get it inside of this pocket, have at it. And so she wrote the first two verses for uh, Tres Mujeres and sung it. and that's her song basically. Cool. Uh, so we started with those two songs and then, uh, uh, when we put those out, uh, as videos basically. Uh, okay. and from those videos, it was enough to sort of captivate people internationally. And we, we toured Europe like three times that year. Uh, we started touring inside of the States and what I figured would happen would happen. And, and that's that like, the sound was new enough mm-hmm. that that like uh people just wanted to see it <laughs> like yeah. they, you know they they'd never heard anything like that and they just really wanted to see it but i think it was like too new in the sense that like um people still to this day will watch the video of three mujeres and they want to know where the dj is oh like, really <laughs> yeah and That's interesting. the same like, yeah. they expect like for there to be a dj yeah, because they hear the electronic sounds and they see the drums, but they don't understand how. The how? Sound yeah, happens. yeah. You know, and it's the same thing when we play live. Sometimes, like people will be looking. They're like, "Oh, he must. They must be using like playback," and we're not. <laughs> you know, we're like we're just we're playing everything right there live. We could like we play it fast, but it's like it's live. You know, yeah. and it, it just boggled my mind that people thought that. But I think it's because they just they never seen that that technology used in that way and mm-hmm. maybe weren't aware that it even existed and then yeah. i i kind of because of the way that you have to use it like you can't really have the the drum heads uh uncovered you have to dampen them somehow so you don't hear the drum sounds so that you can hear the electronic sounds when you're practicing um and so i have towels over the drums yeah and, i noticed that yeah and and that's so that like you don't hear the drum head you just okay. hear the sound in your headphones and, um, and then I, I'm, you know, there's like, I have this, these drum machines too, but in the first video I had them covered up. So you couldn't really see what I was hitting either. And so I kind of get it on a level, but anyways, um, long story short is that, you know, it, it was new enough that some people who did get it were like, I need to see that. And, <laughs> and, and yeah. bookers, you know, brought us around the world for that. And during that time, it gave me a, a chance to like flush out the rest of the songs and mm-hmm. again like i'd never sung a song in my life ever you know i like i went to church from when i was you know a baby till i was 18 i never <laughs> sang a hymn once you know <laughs> <laughs> i don't uh, i was convinced that i couldn't sing and i don't think that i'm a good singer you know i've had to work at it you know mm-hmm. and, and i can get an idea but i'm not really like a singer you know and um and yeah you know uh and uh I, I felt that, okay, well, Spanish, not my first language. English, sure. I, I used to, I wanted to be a writer, but the time in which I would have really, like, honed that craft and honed eloquence in the English language, I picked up and moved to another country. Right. You know, and, and let English go. So I'm not very good at either one of them. Uh, <laughs> so, so I just felt like if I was going to write in, in Spanish, then I should try and, like, use as few words as possible and just try and make them 
drenched with as much meaning as I could, mm-hmm. you know, and and that's it. Now, from a thematic end, I tried to attack things that I felt were like universal themes that mm-hmm. I was sort of rediscovering through the lens of the religion to a certain extent. Yeah. It's almost like out of, out of the particular lies the universal, sort of like that yeah. concept. I think that what I've discovered in your music, just from my perspective as a, just as a huge fan, is like archetype almost. I'm reading a book right now called The Origins and History of Human Consciousness, um, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> quite a read. It's like 500 yeah. pages long. But it right. is like, it's trying to unpacked how the the idea of human consciousness developed through our use and create, creation of archetype and just how certain archetypes can be found um, across multiple different cultures and creeds going back to ancient times. Um, right. So like, for example, there's this concept called uh, the Uroboro, which is an image of a snake eating its tail. Uh, sure. And they have found that that, that, recon- that basically symbolizes uh, the concept of the unconscious and um, like the oneness of 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 the whole universe, and they mm-hmm. found they have found this image multiple in multiple ancient cultures um, that sure. are geographically far away from each other. Um, and so I say all that to say that like I think that that you, this album sort of kind of tapped into that oneness of all human beings. Even you know your next album coming out, you you guys have released two songs. Even Bembe, which uses the imagery of storm, I think speaks to that, right? Because storm does ultimately come from uh, what you know. What Stanley did is ultimately built off of um, you know deities from ancient cultures, and so I yep. think that these things sort of like repeat throughout time and space, which is why they are timeless and why they can ultimately be felt universally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I uh, I would agree with you one hundred, you know. Uh-huh. And it, the you know that like the Ifa corpus basically has is sort of loaded with imagery like that, and loaded with you know fables and yeah. and uh, and stories that you know that deal with a lot of these issues that are universal to you know to humankind. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I I agree with you one hundred. You know, um, you know, uh, again, the uh, the first song like House of Love, you know, was dealing with the idea of giving to receive. You mm. know, uh, the um, sort of a, a divine interchange. That there's some uh, there's some dealing with your ancestors as well, and realizing they're uh, you know part of my daily life. You know, uh, I have a daily ritual where. You know, when I wake up, the first thing I do is greet my ancestor altar, and then I talk to my grandmother, my grandfather, mm-hmm. my brother, and you know, a friend who has passed away, and then I sort of talk to all the other spirits that walk with me. That's first thing in the morning. You know, I mm-hmm. like I put the coffee on, I go do that. You know, and then I <laughs> yeah. then I then I greet Eshu, and Eshu is the opener and closer of opportunities, and okay. and and you know, I talk about my day and I ask for a shoe's blessing and then boom and I start I start walking and start doing my thing and, and so that's a little bit where you 
you know, you hear that idea of sacrifice too, and I'll go for yeah. I'll go for me, something for yeah. you, something for me, you know, divine, true. Yeah. You know, uh, and I say like, um, you know, tell me my brother i'm your servant you know mm. like um uh, you know uh so that that's kind of where that that tune was coming from uh mm. and again it's a super personal level but i think it's something that you know again many people can understand one of the best examples of it i think is like is umbo in the mm. sense that um that song uh you know is basically talking about like moments in need you know, that's, that, uh, and, and it's that moment in time where you, you like are in need of the voice or the companionship or the advice or the love of someone, mm. um, to be able to get you through, uh, you know, whatever moment you're trying to get through, you know, and, yeah. um, it might be just a couple words from this person or, 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 you know, a hug or a kiss or, or something that that is that you need uh in this moment in time to make it to the other side you know and mm -hmm. um in the religion uh there's well so the, the base of the music like the rhythm that's happening yeah. is for an orisha called olokun and okay. olokun is an orisha that lives at the bottom of the ocean um, oh interesting and and so that's very Moana. I don't know if you've seen that movie. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> There's a, you should see it. I'm, I'm actually curious to get your thoughts on that because um, just a little bit of background. I don't know how much you know about Theory of Enchantment, but Theory of Enchantment is basically a curriculum that teaches healthy, holistic identity formations, primarily for teenagers in high school, but it mm -hmm. uses pop culture, aka, in my opinion, pop culture is just a it's just archetypes, basically. Sure. Um, it uses pop culture to teach certain things like empathy, um, you know, um, gratitude, etc. And one of the films that is taught is Moana. But Moana, mm -hmm. the way you're describing this Orisha, it seems like there's some some parallels. Uh, okay. Because she's like a Samoan yeah. princess. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was, like my nephew sat me down and we watched like the first half of it. But okay. I haven't, <laughs> I, I haven't finished it. So yeah, I need yeah. to go back and finish it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm gonna go back to what you're, you're talking about in a second because I, there's a lot of that in Banga. Actually, there's some okay. specific things in Banga that I think are are relevant there. But um, so this Orisha lives in the bottom of the ocean, and so when we think about a locum, we're thinking about like you know spiritual depth, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I tried to actually imagine. Um, if I was on the top of the ocean and I began to sink towards the bottom, uh, what it would look like. And so I remember seeing it like, or thinking about seeing like the light refracted from above and mm -hmm. the depth of darkness from below mm -hmm. and sort of that middle state, um, I wanted to sort of write about that. And that middle state to me was synonymous to, um, spiritual possession and, <laughs> And so we have the opportunity with ritual drumming ceremonies in, in our practice to actually communicate with the divine through possession. Mm -hmm. and, and so we'll play these particular rhythms for um, deities and that rhythm is meant to call that deity to the ground um, to then commune with uh, practitioners. And so there's nothing as powerful as like being the son or the daughter of let's say Ochun and you singing and drumming for Ochun, 
bringing the actual deity to the ground and then being able to hear a message that that deity has has brought for you mm-hmm. not 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 for the not for the group of people that are there for oh, you for you like, specifically <laughs> yes yeah. you know and uh, and when you go to a drum ceremony like this the the deities come to the ground and they go to individuals and mm. say well this and that or or they'll give you a hug or they'll say this or whatever like and so it's a very like um powerful uh experience you know mm-hmm. for people and, and so I, I tried to think about that state of possession and then write about that and so umbo is literally means coming to the ground so umbo come down mm-hmm. come down and the the idea that um you know it just takes um sometimes it could just take the that one individual that one word or that one piece of advice or that piece of love just to be able to like help you get there you know mm-hmm. and that that it can be there you know and those those uh those imp- those uh that that moment of unity and yeah. brother and sisterhood is is there you know yeah. um so it's that that's kind of where i was coming from now um if you know the ritual drumming for the religion you're going to hear the alokun drumming from the beginning right okay. because it's it's there but if you don't know that style of drumming it's just a rhythm to you sure. but um the drums in the religion are speaking in in an actual sense so many of the rhythms mimic the prayers that you're singing on top of them in like the way that they're drummed out so the actual drum is really doing the prayer itself mm-hmm. so whether whether you know it or not like that prayer for a lokun is happening on the drum end the whole time and you may never know it mm-hmm. you know um yeah but, but i feel like i feel like I feel like one can sense that something is happening, right? Yeah. I, they might not know specifically what's happening, but one can sense, I'll speak for myself, I could sense that something was happening on a spiritual level. That yeah, definitely, yeah. and that is what made it unique because it was it was fundamentally spiritual. But I have this interesting relationship, I think, with percussion in general and drums um, in that, like, there's actually a club in Williamsburg called Dembe. <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> which I go to like all the time. Um, okay. And they play a lot of music that's like very much sometimes very similar. Um, definitely like Afro-Caribbean in, in that sense. Um, but I've always had a spiritual experience there. And I think it's because mm-hmm. a, a lot of the origins of that style of drumming comes from explicitly spiritual origins, I think. Or sure. I, sen- sure. I sense that. So I think that makes sense. And I think that if I were to, I guess, project my experience of the album and of this particular song onto other people, I would guess that even for people who don't specifically know that, they can sense that something sort of like metaphysical is happening. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't necessarily happen in our lives like every day. And so Mm -hmm. that's another reason why we want to go see that, go experience it, go be a part of it. Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dig you. Um, I think that I've definitely gotten those kinds of reactions about the record, yeah. you know, and, and what the music is, I guess, um, bringing to people's lives. Again, it's something that I'm deeply thankful for the opportunity to have been able to make and, uh, you know, experience uh, from, you know, uh, the person that's making it, but also experience from the person that's playing it and experience from the person that is, uh, 
sort of getting the, the either pushback or feedback or whatever. Like it's coming back to me too, like whatever yeah. it was that I put out there. And, um, you know, some of it has been just really touching. You know, I've had folks that were like, uh, you know, cancer patients hit me up and they're like, Hey, I oh, listen wow. to your record after I come out of treatment. It just makes me feel good. And, you know, That's thank awesome. you. And yeah, you know, um, it, it's just, you know, super humbling and I'm, I'm very, very thankful for it. Like, you know, um, I would say that in, I know what you mean as far as like sort of having a notion of, of, of what's happening when you listen to it and the idea that that's maybe not something that happens in the everyday lives of folks. And, um, but I suppose part of the reason, and this isn't like preacher-esque, but mm -hmm. part of the, the expansion end of it, like that's the love end, right? Okay. I feel the yeah. expansion end is the end where you realize that like it could be part of your everyday life. You know? Oh, right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. and it is, it is part of your everyday life in a way if you open your eyes to it and your mind and your heart to it you know um mm -hmm. and that's what was really like the driving well, one of the heavy driving forces behind recording the stuff for me is that I was like reframing the way I see the world mm -hmm. as I made this record you know and I'm I had a a, a poet friend of mine uh, who's sort of uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine. And I was telling her before I got into the religion in like maybe 2011 that I was interested in the religion, but I couldn't wrap my head around the idea of praying to a rock. <laughs> and, uh, and she sort of laughed. Yeah, she sort of laughed at me like, you know, and I was like, well, uh, why not? You know, and, and it's the easiest comeback question, but it was really the, the right one to ask, you know. Yeah. And the... The reason why not is that I saw the world uh, the way that Western Europeans see the world, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I was taught. That was, you know, how I was taught to understand the world. And, and in my vision of the world, uh, a stone couldn't express itself and couldn't have life. And, and you know, mm -hmm. and so as I initiated and began to sort of walk in this practice, there's a constant reframing of the way I understand life around me mm -hmm. you know and so uh again like uh, i maybe wasn't wasn't well, I certainly wasn't open to it when i was you know in indiana or a kid mm -hmm. in texas and and when i came to puerto rico i saw it and i wasn't open to it that either yeah. you know but but it, it's been a transformative experience for me um to sort of uh look at the world in a new way you know, and my, look at my purpose in the world in a new way, et cetera. Now, I don't think that everyone, you know, needs to start, you know, practicing, uh, you know, Orisha worship or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or whatever. I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, um, been beneficial for me. And I also don't think that Christianity is inherently a weapon, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there are good things that you could pull out of there, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it certainly, I think my mom gets something out of it, you know, uh, but I couldn't get anything out of it. Sure. And, and, and so, you know, I had to look someplace else, but at the end of the day, I think I was able to find what I was looking for in the sense that there is a, a an invisible world out there and I can access it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and there's great, um, you know, love and, and healing and understanding to be to be, you know, to be touched there. And, and that's part of what the message of the music is too, is, is like the people that are making it are not an anomaly. 
like it's for you you know I see. um you know uh and maybe you've never heard it before but and maybe this is the way you know and and so uh, to i guess to move to that other subject about like you know finding things in pop culture that will open people's eyes to you know concepts that you know maybe have never come across their table when you listen to prayer for Odu, for for odua mm -hmm. um that that's a traditional version of a song for Oldudua. We're not doing anything that's not traditional other than changing the sounds to electronic sounds. And that's it. But it is the exact toque in, or the exact uh, bata patterns and the exact uh, words for the song. So it is a traditional Yoruban prayer in its drumming and its singing. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be the first time you as a listener hear that song for Oldudua. Yeah. You know? Now, now there are plenty of versions out there, but they're from more like traditional recordings, and maybe you would have never heard it and never even been open to it if you hadn't heard it in that context. Yeah, you know, and, and so that's like there's a lot of that in this record too, you know, and, and um, it's just the idea that like um, of of trying to you know project that concept of expansion too and in inclusiveness, mm -hmm. you know there so i i'm certainly reacting to the idea that you're like well that's maybe that's not, not it's not something that's in every people's everyday lives but I, I um hopefully the record will maybe open up a uh the idea of you know a different everyday sure like you know, that, the, the fact that it's possible yeah exactly you know? do you do you, um, do you find it sometimes hard to or challenging to communicate with people who are not necessarily living on that level because one of the sentiments I get from your album is one of gratitude and gratefulness. And I find that like, if I'm in a state of gratitude and gratefulness, it can be sometimes difficult to communicate with people who aren't necessarily in that headspace. Um, if that makes sense. Um, uh, I'm not sure what you mean. You have to be more specific. Yes. Uh, like if I'm in a headspace where I'm just grateful for everything, in my life or if or I, can, I can draw gratitude even out of even out of situations where there's sorrow or something um, it's hard for me I find it's hard for me to communicate that to someone who may experience sorrow in a different way in a very like aggressively seemingly corrosive way right and it's, it's going to be hard for me to communicate like like sorrow is a gift actually it's hard it's, sometimes be hard for me to like make that apparent to someone who's experiencing sorrow in a lens that is not a lens of gratitude or that that is not a lens that allows you to like take time to be present and be still whether that means communicating with your ancestors or just being grateful for everything you have in your life given the fleeting nature of life sure i mean i don't know you know i'm you know, sometimes people that, uh, you know, when I was kind of in a state of, you know, suffering and, and anger, uh, I don't know, you know, um, not much would get through to me sometimes. Uh, you know, things that, would, things that would get through to me were like things that went straight to my heart and sort of, you know, touched on that sorrow, you know, and those okay. were moments where uh, I would cry, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't happen very often, but if it, 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 when it did, it was usually a, a moment where, like, I felt that like someone identified with me, 
mm-hmm. or some, you know, and, um, and could see really what I was going through, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, you know, but everything else, I was like a rock, bro, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and it, it takes time, you know, I, I don't know, you know, um, it takes time, not in, uh, you know, I, like what I, I went through to sort of look at some of these things is like a, is like a, a, a conscious um, journey of self sort of uh, discovery, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain extent. Like I made an effort to like try and see myself, mm-hmm. you know, which when I was just terrified to because I kind of knew what I was going to be seeing, right, you know. Right. before you know uh and so i don't know you know it 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 does take some effort and and you know i don't know man you know um i i I, there's there's ways to there's ways to like get into people you know and sometimes and i'll I'll bet like half of the people that listen to this record if they heard me speak they'd be like what what is this guy (laughs) (laughs) i I like the record bro but uh, so you know, um, I don't know, you know, uh, it's, you you can't, you know, I think that's a sign of a, of a great teacher too, is someone, someone that's able to come at a a subject matter or come to get you to a conclusion by coming several different ways to it, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. So, you know, yeah. I mean, sometimes you can't even talk about it at all. And and if you, if you can't talk about it, how do you still get there? You know what I mean? So, uh, I, I knew I do know that like the the line in the last song on the album, "Forgive my malevolence, forgive yourself in time," was like always like stayed with me and and stuck out as like a very intriguing line, um, and it makes sense given your given your given the you know the, you know, the reason for that record. Um, it's, it's a very beautiful song, and I, I think it's a, an incredible decision to end the album on that song, actually. So, yeah. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, this woman, Jody, w- was somebody that I met, uh, right, uh, within the first six months of moving to Puerto Rico. Uh, she was singing with a reggae group called Cultura Profetica as like a chorus singer. Okay. And I, en- I ended up getting the gig, uh, DJing for that group and touring with them for, I don't know, like two years or something. And, um... I, I didn't get to know her when she was in the group. She ended up leaving the group. And then I heard a recording that she made for somebody else. And I was like, wow, who is that voice? They're like, oh, that's this girl, Jody. You, you, she was in your band. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I sort of tracked her down in San Juan one night and convinced her to come to my house and listen to a bunch of, you know, beats that I had made or music mm-hmm. I was working on. And just basically called her constantly and, you know, <laughs> co- coerced her into being a friend of mine. And, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> usually how it works. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, it is, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, but, you know, she really helped me get through a, a, a tough time in my life, you know, and, um, you know, and it was, you know, she's always kind of been one of those people that have challenged sort of the worst sides of me, you know. I'll put out a, some statement and she'll be like, really? <laughs> what about this? And she'll just challenge whatever it is that I said. And, well, no, no, like, I'm right. And, you know, and, and ma- make you look at yourself, you know? Yeah. And uh, she she really helped me there, you know? And, um, yeah, uh, I guess, um, you know, again, I, I talked about that, that forgiveness that I had to do to myself on several levels, you know? Uh, one 
you know, I, I learned, you know, that the act of forgiveness, even before I forgave myself, I, I was like, okay, well, I gotta like, I gotta owe up to these guys for like the evil stuff that I did to them, you know? And, sure. I mean, it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't super crazy, but it was super selfish, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I still feel responsible for the death of my brother to a certain extent, you know? He okay. asked for my help and I was selfish and didn't give it to him, you know? And a couple months later, he was dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and I felt that I still feel that if I had made an effort to help him, you know, maybe it wouldn't have turned out that way. Maybe it would. I don't know. But I didn't. I didn't help him. You know, and I was young at the time. You know, I was like 22. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, well, you know, I, I don't want like, to have this life in Texas. And if I move my brother out here, like, what am I going to do? I don't even know what to do with him in this town. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. you know, he's not like, you know, he doesn't. Like we won't even really hang out. Like what, you know? And yeah. that was like a really selfish kind of thought pattern for a younger kid. And of course, I wouldn't, you know, do it again. But I had to learn from that, you know. And uh, and I had to also forgive myself. Like be like, look, you were just a kid. You didn't, you know. Yeah. You you, you didn't think about everything on down the line. So it's not like I don't. I didn't come to the same conclusion about about responsibility, mm-hmm. you know. But. Um, I forgive myself, you know. Yeah. And it, and it took a while. <laughs> yeah. You know. That's important, yeah. though. Um, yeah. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been very generous. Um, Not to it. So I guess my my final question would be, what was your inspiration for Yuma Vision? Just because I want to get actually <laughs> something related to that as a tattoo. So okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm just curious because um, that song really that's probably my favorite song on the album. Um, but so I'm curious to, to hear like the backstory behind that. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, well, can I ask you like, (laughs) what do you, what do you think the song means? What do you take out of it? Like, so that's a great question. Um, I'm trying, I'm going to try to articulate things which are sort of seemingly inexpressible, I guess, in a rhetoric sense for me, but I think human vision has all types of connotations for me. Human vision is sort of like, it feels like unconditional love uh, or it feels like what I imagine unconditional love feels like. (laughs) Um, It, 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 it just reminds me of, or it makes me feel like this sense of like overflowing um, graciousness uh, so I guess I volunteer in Bedsta for an organization called Children of Promise, um, which mentors kids whose parents are incarcerated. And every time I come out of that, like every time I finish volunteering on a Saturday afternoon and I'm like walking back to my apartment, it's like the feeling that I have is the feeling that that song makes me feel, if that makes sense. Um, and so it's not, it can be a, sort of in a romantic sense, but it's also very much in a, I see it through the lens of like really shoring someone up and mentoring a person up um, and letting a person know that they are loved and that they, that you believe in them truly, like in the depths of your soul. Um, And I think that that's a beautiful um, expression of service. And I'm not sure that many people ever in their lifetime get to feel that way. And it's not necessarily a thing that people even know that they should be striving to feel as a feeling. Um, 
it's like a it's like a deeper layer of happiness to be in service of someone or to someone to really shore them up and, yeah. and make them feel special. So that's how the song makes me feel. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Uh, You're like, that has nothing to do. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, okay. Okay. So, so uh, humor vision. And I was thinking about this today, actually, uh, it's funny, like, I, I pulled out, like, if you could have the, the cameras on, I pulled out, like, all of the scratch sheets that I basically used to write the lyrics of the songs. So okay. I've got them all out here, like, and you can see even the lines I didn't use and, you know, <laughs> nice. whatever, like, because um, I figured you'd ask me about Jody Gemini. Okay. And, I, and I, I had to remember the lyrics of the songs. I haven't listened to it in a long time. Yeah. And uh, so I was, like, going through the stuff, and, and I pulled out Univision and, and um, and Eurovision is the one song, uh, well, yeah, the one song on the record that's not like religious. It's sort of secular okay. uh, in the sense that like I don't sing to a particular Orisha song there. And it is actually uh, very, very based on Roomba language. And so I don't know if you earlier in the conversation, I talked about wanting to be able to let my soul fly on the level that like I see in the Roomba and having sure. to dedicate my life to that so that I could have that kind of like um, freedom of artistic expression, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the background of that music is using that language. And this is, this song was the last song I did for the record. And um, I didn't show it to anybody in the group. I recorded all the parts, did okay. it myself and that was it. Send it off. Okay. And, <clears throat> I did it uh, in like two days. Now I had a lot of the lines for the song already written because I had discovered the play on words mm -hmm. like six months earlier. And, and I had like taken like six months and gone to work a job where I was working like 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I was working basically every day for six months. Uh, you know, I would take a day off every two weeks. And so I had like notebooks full of material that were like ideas that I had put together. And I came across the Yuma one um, because uh, I had come back from Cuba mm -hmm. and in Cuba, they call the United States Yuma, mm. right? So it, it, there's a couple debates on why this is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> one of them is, is there was an old movie back in the day called, I think it's like the, the 420 to Yuma or the four, it's like a, it's like a, a, a time in Tayuma. And Yuma is like a city, I think, in maybe like Arizona or something. Okay. Uh, and, and, it, and it's an old Western movie. And that was a big movie in Cuba. And they just took that word Yuma and like started using it as a pet name for the United States. Gotcha. Now, there, you could also say United States or United States. And if you like start slurring it, it becomes Yuma. Yeah. Like United States, Yuma, Yuma. And, and, there's a couple of words in Spanish in Puerto Rico that are like that. Like this one that we call for uh, the trash can is like, there used to be these trash cans that had the words safety can written mm -hmm. on them. And people couldn't pronounce it in Spanish. It'd be like safety can, safety can, zafacon, zafacon, zafacon. Mm -hmm. And zafacon <laughs> is like the word that we use for trash can. Gotcha. Anyways, um, they'll talk, if you go to Cuba, they'll talk about Americans as Yuma. So they'll be like, sure. oh, that... 
Yeah, that guy's uh, that, oh, the Yuma girl, blah blah blah. Yeah, or say, yeah. oh, that guy's got Yuma money, like he has American money. Or okay. oh, you know, so and so is going to the Yuma. They're like, oh, they're gonna go travel to the United States. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and I just thought it was a crazy word. And then <laughs> I I saw that if if you like kind of didn't give it any context. Mm-hmm. then it would sound like you are my in English, yeah. you know? And I was like, okay, this is a perfect opportunity to write a song for two different audiences. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, and two distinct messages. And so if you don't know what the word Yuma means uh, in the Cuban sense, then you're going to get one song out of it, you know, mm-hmm. where it's really kind of like a song about love and lovers, basically. Mm-hmm. And then if you get the other one, then it's a, it's basically about two people in, in this sense, two countries mm-hmm. seeing each other for real. Like, oh, I love that. You know, uh, I, I love that actually. So like, <laughs> like, like the first line, it says, uh, you ma lose, you ma sight, mm-hmm. you ma mata, you ma might. So you ma lose, you ma sight. Um, uh, Lose is also the could be light in Spanish or it could right. be lose in English. Right, 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 right. So you're saying you're my light, you're my sight, you're my mata, you're my might. Like a mata is a plant, but it also means to kill. And, uh, you know, and so yeah. you could say you, you, Yuma, like the United States has lost its sight. Yeah. Yuma, Yuma kills, Yuma might. Yeah. Know? And and so like. But it, it, on, on the love end side of it, it's like, you know, you're, yeah, you're my light, you're my sight, you know, you're my basically plant life or whatever, like, yeah, you're yeah. my might, you're my strength, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I just ran the whole thing down like that. And so it, if, like, the Cubans will listen to it and they'll get something complete, like, it, it is literally a critique of, of the way that, that each one sees each other without... Mm-hmm really being in contact with each other either. so the cubans have like a whole like idealization about what life in the united states must be like mm-hmm. because they see it on television uh they they like but they're not allowed to access it and so they're mm-hmm. they're their real understanding of what american life is and what technology is what modern life is is like through you know like approximation they don't really sure. know what it's it distance is. it's it's at a distance <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, our ideas about Cuba are the same. Right. You know, also at a distance. Uh, right. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the beauty of, 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 uh, sometimes, um, some of the harder, uh, roads to walk are, are when you have to actually look at people that you may not want to look at, or you may have looked mm-hmm. at in one way and, and have to see them, uh, in another light, you know, mm-hmm. and vice versa, you know, the yeah. idea of being, being seen and being vulnerable yeah. know, and being honest about, you know, who you are. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of where the, the, the song cool. comes from. That's really cool. So perhaps that, but perhaps that like, uh, there's this James Baldwin quote that I'm forgetting right now that is relevant to what you're saying. Um, but um, perhaps is it like, the one Go ahead, yeah. Is it the, is it the one from uh, uh, where he's talking about jazz and blues being perhaps the way that 
that are the art forms that are the most close to people seeing each other without pretension? Uh, no, but you should send me that essay where he says that. Um, <laughs> it's it's the one where he's in like some far off town in like Sweden or somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he says something to the effect of like a person cannot be liked unless unless their true full self is revealed in all the complexity. Um, and I feel like on a, on a sort of meta level, it's, it's only so to take this sort of to logical conclusion, at least as I see it, it's only by America and Cuba seeing each other in the realness and the fullness of that vision that, that the relationship between these two countries can actually develop into the lovers, the the lovers meaning of the song essentially. Right. Um, but it requires that first step. Um, and so, and so in a sense, the two meanings are actually interrelated, um, or can be sort of like a part of a story arc about the nature of the relationship between these two countries. Um, and the two countries themselves can actually be the lovers. Um, you know, so that's really cool. I like that. I like that sort of like, that interrelatedness and the, the fact that a double entendre can actually be, um, I don't know, weirdly related to its, to its, uh, I guess, the other component that you thought it wasn't at all related to. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. I really respect that. Um, well, I'm, I, as I promised, I'm not going to take up any more of your time, but I just want to thank you for you know, taking the time to sit down with me and tell me your story and share, share the, the story behind this incredible album. I've been to all the concerts that you guys have um, had in New York. Um, and, you know, I own it on, on vinyl. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I try to introduce every new person I know and every old, old friend I know to this album. Introduced someone to it last night. Um, so I, I know that you probably get this all the time, but I'm truly grateful and truly, truly blessed to have this album in my life. And I just want to thank you for, for being, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and allowing yourself to forgive yourself so that you could produce such an incredible uh, piece of artwork. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, believe it or not, I don't get it all the time. And, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Um, I really appreciate it. You know, I remember uh, actually getting your record shipped out to you. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember. I wrote like a, a like a heartfelt like <laughs> note on the on the after I purchased it. I do remember. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was funny because I think uh, you know either we started following each other on Instagram or something, and I kind of yeah. went through your feed, and there were a couple things of you playing like acoustic guitar and I was like oh wow man I love her voice like that's great like you know and uh then I was gassed to find out that you had bought the record I was like oh that's the one that is the girl's playing the guitar it's <laughs> oh, amazing man you know so uh yeah you know I I you know I appreciate um you know the support and I'm I'm grateful that uh that the music has has had some some meaning in your life man and uh that's that's a that's a huge gift and that's all i could ever hope for so you know awesome um, you know, thanks for inviting me uh to the podcast you know I've, I've checked out a couple of these and uh i really love the work that you're doing and and so yeah it's a pleasure and an honor to be
The quote of the day is actually a full-fledged poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Paul Lawrence Dunbar was born on June 27, 1872. He became one of the first influential black poets in American literature. And James Weldon Johnson once said that, quote, he was the first to rise to a height from which he could take a perspective view of his own race. He was the first to see objectively its humor, its superstitions, its shortcomings, the first to feel sympathetically its heart wounds, its yearnings, its aspirations, and to voice them all in a purely literary form. The name of this poem is called The Paradox. I am the mother of sorrows. I am the ender of grief. I am the bud and the blossom. I am the late falling leaf. I am thy priest and thy poet. I am thy serf and thy king. I cure the tears of the heartsick. When I come near, they shall sing. White are my hands as the snowdrop. Swart are my fingers as clay. Dark is my frown as the midnight. Fair is my brow as the day. Battle and war are my minions doing my will as divine. I am the calmer of passions. Peace is a nursling of mine. Speak to me gently or curse me. Seek me or fly from my sight. I am thy fool in the morning. Thou art my slave in the night. Down to the grave will I take thee, out from the noise of the strife. Then shalt thou see me and know me, death then no longer but life. Then shalt thou sing at my coming, kiss me with passionate breath. Clasp me and smile to have thought me, aught save the foemen of death. Come to me, brother, when weary, come when thy lonely heart swells. I'll guide thy footsteps and lead thee down where the dream woman dwells. That is The Paradox by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Special shout out to Miriam Bachman for letting me know about this poem, which I had not known about before. And that makes for another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mr. Arturo Moon, and I really, really hope and encourage you to listen to the album by Ife. If you have not, please go do so. It's a real treat. It's one of the greatest albums I've heard in my entire life. Thank you so much again for listening to the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Have a great weekend. You my sight, you my matter, you my light. You my drugs, you my thirst, you my loves, you my first.